Welcome to Voir Dire, conversations from the program in criminal justice policy and management at the Harvard Kennedy School. I'm your host, Skylar Dom, and today I'm going to be talking to Daniel Sarad, the founder of Common Justice. Common Justice is a program in New York City that provides restorative justice services in cases involving adult felony charges. It was the first of its kind in the country, and it continues to be a leader in this space. I'm really excited to talk to Danielle about Common Justice's work, but I was also really thrilled to bring her into this space because I've heard Danielle speak a number of times, and she is just one of the most compelling criminal justice reformers I have ever heard. She, better than anyone else I can think of, is able to bring a sense of moral clarity and pragmatism to her approaches to criminal justice. She can bring into the same thought both the humanity of survivors of crime as well as people who perpetrate crime. And she speaks about violence in a way that is for lack of a better way of putting it, profoundly important. So I'm glad to be bringing this conversation to you. So wanted to start just talking about the need that you and Common Justice are trying to address. I think it's fair to say, although I don't want to put words in your mouth, that your life's work is about responding to violence. So tell me how the criminal legal system currently responds to violence and is it working? So the United States has long relied on incarceration as our primary response to violence. We have done this mostly for political reasons, right? We've done it because a tough on crime posture has always been viewed as a good political tactic. And the reason I know we've done it for political reasons is that if we were to actually look at the problem of violence and try to solve it, mass incarceration wouldn't make our top 100 list of what we should do to keep people safe. Um, we know that violence is driven by structural factors, by things like inequity, by poverty, by lack of access to decent healthcare, decent housing, decent medical care, decent mental health care, decent school, and that there is nothing about incarceration that reduces or addresses those factors and in many ways it exacerbates them all. Like even more than that, both of us in the business of ending violence know that even on an individual level, violence is driven by shame, isolation, exposure to violence, and an inability to meet one's economic needs. And the core features of prison are shame, isolation, exposure to violence, and an inability to meet one's economic needs. So we baked into our responses to violence exactly the things that generate it. And at Common Justice, we asked the question, what if what we wanted to do in response to violence was solve it, right? Not punish it, not exact revenge for it, but address it, repair it, and ensure it doesn't happen again. And if that's the question you ask, you come up with fundamentally different answers. Our answer includes a restorative justice-based alternative to incarceration for serious and violent crime that both give the people who caused harm an opportunity to engage in repair and transform their behavior and also meets the needs of those who were harmed and coming through what happened to them in their lives generally. But that's one of countless answers you would come to if the thing you wanted to do with violence was actually to eliminate it. 
and I want to get into common justice and its work in particular, but I, I appreciate your contextualizing it and it could be many responses. And I'm so just in the, in the business of contextualizing before we get into your specific work, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about who bears the burden of this sort of improper response that we're currently utilizing, you know, who is it a, that is suffering from that? It's obviously harmful to people who are incarcerated, right? People are placed in cages far from everyone they love and subjected at best to isolation, but almost always also to violence, to sexual violence, to like grave indignity, to all sorts of kinds of harm. And because every incarcerated person is human, people are worse for that, um, that experiencing that kind of harm damages us, that hurts us. Um, and we live with that hurt in whatever way we can for the rest of our lives. Because prisons fail so completely to reduce violence and in fact generate it, it means the community people come home to also suffer from the failure, right? They, if, you know, I've often said, you know, the United States incarcerates more people, more of our own people than any country in all in human history. And so if incarceration worked to prevent violence, we would be the safest nation ever to have existed. But not only that, in the black and brown communities where incarceration is most concentrated, they would be these like idenic havens where violence was almost unimaginable for the sheer amount of law enforcement and prison that we have put into those neighborhoods. Um, it would work. It doesn't work. Uh, people pay the price of prison's failure with their enduring pain every single day. Those are the survivors themselves. They are the community members who walk by caution tape on their way to school. They are the children who grow up to the point that like, the sound of bullets in the night doesn't even wake them because it's so normal. They are all the people who could have had good schools, could have had community centers, could have had good hospitals, but for our choice to put all of our money into punishment even though that punishment doesn't produce anything of value for those very people in whose names we're spending all that money. And for survivors, to see that happen in their name and to no benefit to themselves is particularly horrifying, right? And so for survivors who know that's not what they need to heal, who know what they want, who know what would make them safe, who when presented with another option, choose it over and over again, to have their society continuously choose something that runs contrary to their most pragmatic interest of not being hurt again and not seeing others get hurt only compounds the pain and trauma they experience from the crime that should have been prevented in the first place. I think the thing that makes me most furious about the way the criminal legal system dominates our response is not just all the harm it caused, which is so vastly documented and so vastly known. It's the fact that we're doing this in the presence of options that could work. And that's the part to me that is so like morally intolerable, but it is also the part that points to a different future being possible, not in some long imagined distant way, but now. So let's jump into then what what common justice does to your point about there there all there are alternatives so can you just introduce common justice yeah so displacing mass incarceration with solutions that actually work will require 
countless solutions. It's not going to be one thing. Common justice is one of those. And so we operate an alternative to incarceration and victim service program based in restorative justice practices. So in cases like stabbings and other assaults and gunpoint robberies, if and if only if the survivors of those crimes agree, the cases are diverted into a restorative justice process. The people responsible for that harm see us every day. They go through an intensive preparatory process, um, as well as being engaged in like stabilizing activities that ensure they have steady access to housing and food and engagement and productive activity in their community. About three months in, we convene a dialogue with the person who caused the harm, the person harmed by it, and their support people, where we acknowledge what happened, acknowledge its impact, and come to agreements about what the responsible person can do to make things as right as possible. Those agreements almost always include, you know, though we don't dictate it, it always happens, a set of things that's about the survivor, apologies, restitution, other forms of acknowledgement to them and their family, um, a set of things that is about the responsible person. So going to school, getting a job, going to therapy, going to treatment, any number of things that the people in that room believe will help transform that person into someone who doesn't choose to cause harm ever again. And then a set of things that are about the community or about that person paying it forward. So some good thing comes of this bad thing. So things like community service, talking to younger kids about the path they're going down and the other options available to them, making public art, public memorials, those sorts of things. Those agreements together with our year-long violence intervention curriculum form the bulk of what the responsible parties do for the next year. If they're successful in that they graduate, they don't go to prison and the felony charges against them are dismissed. And in the meantime, through all of this, we're working with the survivors to help them come through what happened to them and in their lives generally. We're preparing them for the circle. We're helping them decide if they want to be there themselves or be represented by a surrogate. We're helping them manage any safety considerations. And we're helping them achieve other goals in their life that may or may not be obviously directly related to what happened. Because what we know is that like, if there's one thing trauma doesn't care about, it's boundaries, right? It, it infuses all parts of our lives. And so there is not a part of our harm, party lot, our harm party's lives that we judge to be like fundamentally out of the scope of our work or our care for them. So before we kind of get into the sort of nitty gritty of, I'm really curious, like what's in the curriculum and to see what, what's, what a circle would feel like. I'm just curious why you chose for, for common justice to focus on violence. Like you could pick economic harms or dignitary harms or, or things like that. Why is violent. How did that become the, the focus of your work? But there are two things. You know, one is that if you want to end mass incarceration, you have to address violence. Fewer, more than half of people incarcerated in the country are incarcerated for crimes of violence. And so if we ignore that whole body of time, we will never see an end to mass incarceration in our lifetime. The second is that if you ask survivors or community members what type of crime is most important we get right? You know, no one is saying shoplifting to you. <laughs> like people are saying violence. Like other things they dislike, they're inconvenient, they're even harmful, but they're tolerable, right? Like you can imagine your kid living in a world where those things, where shoplifting is common and not feel terrified in your bones every day. 
And so violence is hands down the priority. And then we use restorative justice practices. And when I say restorative justice, I mean a process in which the people most directly impacted by a given harm come together to address that harm and reach a decision about how the responsible person can make things as right as possible. So it's a process that is about a specific harm. It is a process that involves those directly impacted and it is action oriented, right? It reaches agreements, so not just apology. So restorative, there are restorative dialogues where people talk to each other. Those are lovely. I don't regard them as restorative justice because they aren't fundamentally crafting a path to repair. And so part of what, when I look at restorative justice practices, both as someone who has practiced them through a wide range of cases and in looking at the literature and research nationally and internationally, they are universally more effective in more serious cases. And for anyone who's been in the process, it makes sense. Like it's a process that brings you face to face with the impact of what you've done. And so if the impact is greater, like so too is your response. It is a fiercely proportionate process. And when we do restorative justice for things like graffiti, it is always my feeling that we are squandering the greatest tool available to us. So when you say like, why would you do restorative justice for violence? It's sort of like asking, like, why would you use chemo for cancer? And you're like, well, I'm not going to use chemo for the common cold. You know, and so in thinking about addressing violence, it is about, it's, it's a political and strategic consideration, but it's most fundamentally a moral consideration. And in the presence of something that works, the, the application of something that works to a problem um, that desperately needs solving is, is irresistible. So then put us in the, put us in the circle. What does it look like? And, you know, sort of what are people coming in with? It sounds like people do a lot of preparation beforehand to come in and where does it go from there? So in the circle, the harm party is present, the responsible party is present. There support people who may be family, friends, partners, mentors, people with a direct stake are present a facilitator is present, and sometimes other staff members from Common Justice are there as support. And everyone, there's a talking stick. You can talk when you have it. You don't when you don't, and you pass it around. That is an ancient practice um, that comes out of a wide variety of indigenous communities around the globe. And the questions are really straightforward. The questions are, first, you know, who are you? And then questions about what happened. How did you feel at the time? At the time? What do you want to see come out of all of this? And then everyone brainstorms possible agreements. And some of them are possible and some of them aren't. And some of them are ideas that give rise to better ideas. And we write them all down. And then we go through and talk each of those ideas through individually to reach consensus about whether it should be part of the general course of repair and in what specific ways. The actual process is never a surprise to anyone in the room. It's not meant to be surprising. People are deeply prepared for it. We don't take people in who don't appear to be ready in any way. It's really critical to us that the harm party's well-being is considered centrally in determining whether we're ready to be in a circle or not. And so that means both, like, are they ready to be in this conversation? And also, is the responsible party ready to show up in a way that will make a contribution to their healing rather than reinsure them. And so 
that preparation is a really critical part of ensuring that the circle goes well. And even with all of that preparation, the circle is never fully predictable because what happens when people finally tell the truth and finally acknowledge one another is always different than anything anyone could have imagined before that. Can you talk a little bit about quote unquote accountability? I feel like it's one of those words that is everywhere. And and also I have no idea what it means and, and how, and I, it's sort of baked into that is how would you respond to someone that says like, gosh, this sounds like this is really just letting someone off the hook. You're talking about felonies and someone just, you know, goes to a circle and then, and then what their case gets dismissed. So first of all, we use the terms punishment and accountability synonymously in this country. And the more I do this work, the more it's clear to me, like not only are they not synonyms, they're actually antithetical. So punishment is passive. Punishment is something someone does to me. All I have to do to be punished is not escape it. Accountability is active. Accountability requires that I acknowledge what I did, that I acknowledge its impact, that that I express genuine remorse, that I make things as right as possible, ideally in a way defined by those harms, and that I do the immense labor of becoming someone who will never cause that harm ever again. You know, accountability is some of the hardest work any of us will ever do. I think about one of our participants early on who, you know, had been gang involved since he was eight or nine years old, and he had seen more violence than anyone should see in a lifetime and been subject to more violence than anyone should be subject to in a lifetime and committed more violence than anyone should commit in a lifetime. And he came to us for a case in which he had robbed and assaulted this young 14-year-old boy. And he sat in the circle with that young man and with that young mother. And after hours and hours and hours together in that process, we successfully reached agreement. Every circle in common justice has successfully reached agreement in the end. And the, the harm party of mom left and the responsible party was still there. And he said to me, you know, can I stay here for a minute before I leave? And it was very late. And he said, you know, I just want to sit for a minute until my hands stop shaking. And this is the kid who I'm sure could hold a gun in the study of day. And he said to me, you know, for everything that's been done to me and everything I've done, I don't know that I've ever heard a real apology before. How do you think I did? And because it was true, I told him I thought he did great. And he said, you know, pardon my language, but that's the scariest shit I ever did. And I think if any of us are honest, facing people we have harmed is some of the hardest work we ever do. It's hard, like the third time you're late for the same friend for no good reason. You know, people make up stories about the subway being delayed or whatever happened instead of saying, I just was late. Like I just left my house too late. Things that like small levels are hard for us to own. Any of us who have actually owned harm we've caused to others, even in just our personal relationships, know that that process demands everything of us. And to do that for serious harm is extraordinarily demanding. And so when we talk about why it's not soft, you know, on the one hand, it's because it requires, I think, more of us as human beings than any number of years in prison can ever require of anybody. It's really important to understand that we don't think about accountability as saying sorry. So you heard express genuine remorse as one of five steps. It is not the whole thing. And so at at Common Justice, we talk about accountability, not as saying sorry or being sorry or feeling sorry, but doing sorry. 
right? Like what does an apology look like as a, as a way of living, as a set of action, right? And so it's never about just sort of a group hug and an apology, though sometimes apologies happen. Sometimes they don't. So like for some harm parties, they don't really care for someone else's words. They're interested in what their actions are going to be going forward. That makes a great deal of sense to me. And the other part of it, when we think about sort of toughness and people getting off and all of that, is it really speaks to how obsessed we are with exacting revenge and how uninterested we are in promoting safety. Right? Like the question is not, have we exacted enough revenge? The question is, have we done something that will make people safer? And prison can't look to that second question in its mirror and ever answer yes, right? It doesn't do it. And so for all we sort of judge the like emotionality of survivors and sort of talk about them being caught up in their feelings or whatever, survivors are just far more pragmatic than our criminal justice system has ever been, right? Survivors, what they want from the person who hurt them is to have the harm repaired, to never be hurt again, and to have that person hurt no one else. And what the criminal justice system wants is blood. That's weird. You know, I've described it like if you, if someone burned down your house, all the criminal justice system can do for you is burn down their house in your name. But you need somewhere to live. And part of what restorative justice asks is, like, what would it look like for you to be responsible to build that new dwelling? Right? And that means in concretely, it means engaging in repair. It means supporting people in their healing. It means restoring what was stolen or broken or destroyed. And for a survivor, if your home is burned down, that's not to say you might not feel satisfaction in that other person's home being burned. You can and do deserve that. Like the taking pleasure in revenge is a perfectly legitimate emotion for a survivor. It is not, in my view, a legitimate moral basis for the largest criminal legal system in the world, right? And a legitimate moral basis for that system is actually what survivors do, which is to say, I want to be safe and what will make me safe? And I want that system to put its resources, its power, its attention behind my safety. And so the notion of toughness is like very, it's very weird to me because I think it both totally underestimates the difficulty of accountability. And it's also sort of uselessly kind of manly and mad uh, without having much of anything in it that considers anybody whose life is at stake in the choices we make in that system. So what are the, um, you know, how do, in my mind, I, I always say survivor, but how do harm parties end up in the common justice process and kind of what is that thought process? So it's really important to know fewer than half of victims call the police in the first place. Another half don't make it past grand jury. So we're talking about that remaining quarter who are like arguably the jailingest subset of victims around and the subset of those who, you know, have experienced lacerations to their liver, guns to their head, all of these horrible things. And we work with cases that are in the criminal legal system. So they get a call from the DA's office asking for their permission for us to call them. And we call them and we say, what happened to you is wrong. What do you need? And what do you want to see come out of all of this? And then we say, 
do you think the person's incarceration will get you those things you need and get you what you want to see come out of all of this? And they almost universally say no. And we describe what we do and we ask them which thing they prefer. And 90% of the survivors we talk to choose common justice, 90%. And I think at first when I saw that, I, I just thought people were great. You know, I thought we were really merciful and really compassionate. And we thought, you know, but for the grace of God, go I. And it's like a very bright period of my life. And I think the actual reason is not, it's not like it's sweet, but it's, I think actually ultimately is beautiful in a different way. Like it's beautiful the way like a well-built bridge is beautiful instead of the way like a Picasso is beautiful, which is that survivors are pragmatic. The two things we survivors cannot stand are the thought of going through it again and the thought of anyone else going through what we went through. And so if we are faced with a set of options, we will choose the thing that we think will prevent the thing we can't stand. And the hardest people in the world to persuade that incarceration will keep them safe are people who live in neighborhoods where incarceration is common. Because if it worked, they would not have been hurt in the first place. And they know that. And so our survivors choose it. Some, some of them choose it for the responsible party. You know, they choose it because they want to give a second chance. But they all choose it for themselves. Like they choose it because they think it's the thing that will help them heal. It's the thing that will help them be safe. And the part of them that is so beautiful is that Every survivor we've ever talked to is concerned with other people not being hurt. And that's pretty good. It's not quite the same as everyone being compassionate, but it, it may be just as beautiful. Um, that even as they're staring down their own fear for their own lives, like not a single person can help but consider that others deserve safety too. And when most survivors answer that question, they answer that this is a better tool than, than prison will ever be. Yeah, it is really, it's incredible. And I, and I find myself engaging in that same sort of like rosy view of human nature, because I, I truly, I've never spoken to a survivor who hasn't like at some point brought up the analysis of, I don't want to report this. I don't want to, but if I found out that this could happen to someone else, then I would, I, you know, my calculus would be different. We talk in their names and we have never bothered to put anything like the energy we put into the criminal justice system into the question of actually solving violence. Yeah. Uh, we spend billions and billions and billions of dollars on something that continuously fails. And we do that in the presence of other solutions, in the presence of restorative justice, in the presence of like violence interrupter and criminal messenger programs, in the presence of transformative justice. And we do that knowing that actually making basic investments in infrastructure would go farther to guaranteeing a community safety than any specific individual prosecution ever will. Yeah, it is. Um, it is crazy how much of an accessory to a criminal process, you know, victims are like they're called you get complaining to... witnesses. Yeah, <laughs> like, but well, then I... you have to explain to a survivor that the criminal legal system refers to them as a complaining witness. They're like complaining. Yeah. Witness. Right. Like to think about that as what it means to be telling somebody that like you nearly lost your life. And it's difficult. Like one of the things that I think is really revelatory about this and it relates to a policy campaign Common Justice is running um, is that in every state in this country, in order to access victims compensation, survivors have to report what happened to them to law enforcement and cooperate with that prosecution. And 
For many survivors, it's just inconsistent with their sense of what will make them safe. They are either afraid specifically of the police because of harm they or people close to them have experienced at the hands of the police. They are maybe afraid of retaliatory violence if they make that report. Um, they may know that they are likely to be questioned and misbelieved and drawn into a lengthy criminal legal system process that will only exacerbate their trauma. And so for any number of reasons, particularly marginalized survivors, black and brown survivors, LGBTQIA survivors, immigrant survivors, survivors with disability, people will choose not to experience the harm they experience that happened to them, to the police. But if they do that, they are excluded from victims' compensation. And victims' compensation isn't like a blank check. Victims' compensation is reimbursement of the medical bills for the emergency surgery ha you had when you were shot. It's relocation expenses when your home was broken into and that person said they are coming back. It's, it's reimbursement for the trauma-focused therapy that you went to after you survived sexual violence, right? It's all of those things. And we say to victims that if you're not willing to support a criminal legal prosecution, like we have nothing for you. And so it means in addition to not being protected in the first place, in addition to legitimately having reasons to believe they will not be subsequently protected if they report, we also either exclude them from these very basic healing needs or we ensure they are saddled with debilitating lifelong debt. It is wildly inequitable. And I think one of the things that's so revelatory about these laws is I think they reveal what is one of the best kept and darkest secrets and widest known secrets within the criminal legal system, which is that it's bad for survivors. Because if the legal system were as good as for survivors as we say it is, then why do we have to compel their participation in it? Like, why wouldn't they just choose it? If they want to call the police, if they want the person prosecuted, then why do we have to say to them, if you don't do this, you can live with that medical debt. If you don't do this, you can't move. If you don't do this, you can't access emergency shelter housing, right? If it was really so good for them, we wouldn't have to withhold a critical life benefit from them to make them participate. And I think just looking at that, every single state has interpreted the federal law in our view, inaccurately, to make that requirement, I think betrays something that on some level we know this is not what victims want. We know that it's not what they would choose on their own. And that's embodied in ways that we say we are not going to help them heal unless they do this. Like shame on us. And shame on us for not having built a system that they would be safe calling, that would make them safer when they called. But in the absence of that system, shame on us from withholding their most basic needs from them in the face of our like abject failure to do right by them in any other way. Yeah. It is amazing how when you picture a courtroom, it's basically lawyers, like it's their show. And defendants are also basically accessories to their own cases, right? They're supposed to sit there quietly. And when they do speak up, it's typically considered a disruption and, you know, everyone freaks out. And so... The circle sort of brings both parties back into the conversation. I'm curious. It makes yeah. sense to people. It makes sense to survivors to get to be the one to ask the question. Like, why me? What did you do? Was it a real gun? What if I had fought back? What if I hadn't fought back? How dare you? Do you know how this affected me? It makes sense to survivors to be the ones who have that role. 
And it makes more sense to defendants. Like defendants don't typically feel accountable to a prosecutor or judge for what they did. That's not who they hurt. But that same defendant who does not feel accountable to the state in that room, that barely knows their name, in the face of the person they hurt, know full well that they owe something to that person. You'll get different answers of whether they think they owe anything at all to the court. But if you ask, do you owe something to that person you hurt? Almost everybody says yes, because they do. What does the curriculum look like? You mentioned a year-long curriculum that folks go through. Just curious what that entails. So the curriculum supports responsible parties in reflecting on violence in their lives, right? So they reflect on violence they've experienced. They reflect on what they've learned about violence, like what it's for, like what effect it has, when it's needed, what it achieved. And it supports them in healing through their own pain. It supports them, you know, fundamentally, we think about the curriculum as going to war with the normalization of violence, right? And that normalization usually starts with them learning that whatever happened to them was no big deal. I don't know anyone, I've never met anyone who committed violence who didn't survive it first. And so we don't think surviving it first excuses them for causing future pain. Like myself as a survivor of rape, of assault, who's lost loved ones to murder. I don't think I'm entitled to hurt anyone because of what happened to me. I do believe that I'm entitled to heal. And I believe our responsible parties all are, and at the time they were hurt, were entitled to healing. And in part, in through addressing and turning toward what they experienced themselves, it often helps disrupt their own minimization. And that minimization is part of what made it possible for, to hurt someone else in the first place, right? The sense that it is no big deal is not an idea that entered their minds when they were first going to cause harm. It's an idea that entered their minds based on how others responded when they were first hurt. And so we spend a lot of time on that. We spend a lot of time helping people develop other options. Um, many of our participants are people who don't want to engage in violence and don't see other ways to survive or meet their basic needs. And so we do a lot of helping them carve out new ways to do that and be thought partners to them in how to approach it. We do a lot of helping them cultivate their responsibility to the person they hurt, to think about the effect they had on that person, what they think they owe, what they can do to make it right so that they're ready to go into that circle. And then following the circle, we do, a, the curriculum does a lot to focus on how to help them have healthy, well-resourced in every sense, not just financially, but also in terms of support and relationships and all of those things um, live so that they can go on and live in the way they want to and that all of us would want them to, um, which is to love the people they love, to do things that they're good at, that are valuable, to not hurt other people, and to live for a very long time. And so the curriculum aims at all of that and is built on an understanding of the underlying drivers of violence for individuals and is designed to help disrupt those. The other thing about the curriculum that's important to note is that it's all, all inquiry-based. It's all question. We don't, I've not met many people who learn by being told something, but I've certainly never met an adolescent who learned that way. And we also know our participants know everything they need to know to live in a way they want to live. And that it's our job to help hold that container and invite that conversation in a way that allows their fundamental wisdom to surface 
um, as opposed to some notion that we're pouring these ideas into them that they'll, they'll then later retain. But how do you measure success and do people ever fail? I mean, we measure success in a, a number of ways. Most centrally, we measure recidivism for our responsible parties. Fewer than 7% of responsible parties in the program have been terminated for new crimes on our watch. That number rose slightly during COVID, but it's already stabilizing again as we're back to full in-person engagement. That failure rate is extraordinarily low compared to any other institution you look at. Like prisons will have recidivism rates on the order of 60%, 70%, 80%. So yes, people fail and the vast majority of people succeed. On the survivor side, we are interested in the contribution our work makes to survivors healing and I've been working for many years now with a few really extraordinary researchers to develop a, a healing measure. There are a lot of measures that measure trauma, but they're, they're, they're problematic for a lot of reasons. They sort of ask the wrong questions. They ask them in a strange way. But they also mostly assume that somebody had one traumatic event that happened. And so they can't account for what happens if someone experiences further harm or another loss or chronic trauma, which is the reality for most of our survivors. And so we asked the question, you know, what if instead of measuring the absence of trauma, we measured the presence of healing? And a group of researchers embarked on a process with a ton of community partners, hundreds around the country, to sort of define what healing is and, and develop a measure to, to assess its presence in people's lives. And so that scale is going through its fancy scientific validation process at this stage and will be used not just by us, but hopefully by many, many others when it's done. Cool. I, I, I believe this is the case that common justice does not work in cases involving sexual violence. And can you tell me about that, that choice? Yeah, it's just not what we do. And I say that to try and make really clear, I do think restorative justice processes can be applicable to that kind of harm, but it's different. And one of the mistakes the criminal legal system makes is it sort of presumes that like charge severity is in itself an adequate indicator of what the response should be, right? And we actually know that different kinds of harm are going to require different kinds of responses. And so there are some great people around the country doing work on the application of restorative justice to sexual violence. It has a lot in common with what we do and also really substantial facets of it that are meaningfully different in a way that relate to the safety of people in the process and the ultimately efficacy of it in the end. Okay. I'm just curious, how did you convince a court to let you, to let you do this? You know, whose door did you knock on? What did you say to them? And for someone, you know, there is a sort of increasing interest in restorative justice program. And so for someone who's thinking about trying to set this up in their jurisdiction or where in their community, how did you do this? So the most critical actor in all of this is the DA. Like if you're seeking to divert cases from the criminal legal system, if you are just seeking to respond to harm with restorative justice, then the most critical actors are leaders in the community who have meaningful credibility with others in the community. And you don't have to talk to anyone in the criminal legal system. And more than half of crimes of violence are already not there, so you have plenty of work. So there's a huge body of work that can be deeply embedded in community that, you know, for which the criminal legal system is irrelevant. If you're talking about diversion from that system of cases that are, you know, have 
been processed, you know, that have resulted in an arrest that are being charged, then the district attorney is the most critical actor. And I think the thing that gives me most hope in other jurisdictions is, you know, there's been a lot of emergence over the last, particularly five years of what get called progressive prosecutors, right? So prosecutors who are running on platforms that are about ensuring safety and reducing mass incarceration simultaneously. It's really important to note that that didn't just happen, right? Like that's a movement outcome. It's an outcome of decades of organizing around these issues, of elevating these issues to public attention, of creating a political environment in which the continued sort of sustenance of a system that produces such racist outcomes is intolerable. And so forcing a road where people have to think about those outcomes, those inequities, as part of what it is their job to address. So it's not just that like, suddenly some really good people got it in their minds to be DAs, right? It is the product of movement. And the thing that makes me most hopeful about those progressive prosecutors is not any of their specific individual character. Right. It's not like this person is a really good person and they really get it or they came from this or they know that the thing that makes me hopeful is organizing. And so, for example, in Brooklyn, when Ken Thompson, may he rest in peace, ran for district attorney, he ran almost entirely in black and brown communities. He understood that the people who would be most impacted by his office's work were in a handful of neighborhoods in the borough. And he decided that those were the people whose votes he would take most seriously the work of securing. And what that did when he won that way is it made him structurally accountable to the people impacted by his work. And I know this is like a very weird time to say I'm a big believer in representative democracy in America. I understand that that is a minority opinion right now. But something transformative happens when elected officials are actually accountable. And I don't mean accountable like they choose to be or they care about or they like, but rather that the people who will decide whether they keep their jobs or not are the same people who are impacted by the choices they make in those jobs. When that happens, it's game changing because the tolerance for what people talk about as risk in communities that have been ravaged by mass incarceration is fundamentally different. Like people in communities where, who have lived with the failure of incarceration for all these years are not ejecting a prosecutor because one person went to a program and committed a new crime, right? The thing that is intolerable is the status quo. And the demand is to do equity and safety at the same time or else, right? Like that's the demand they place on their electives. And so it's not the specific prosecutors who make me hopeful. It is the organizing around them that put them into office, that's holding them accountable. Organizing that got a lot of like deepened sort of breadth and concentration through the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement. But, you know, all of those people were organizing long before too, right? But that helped support a real confluence of movement attention around criminal legal system issues. And so that creates a great deal of promise because then what a prosecutor is going to do is going to be at least partially dictated by the desires of the people who are going to live with the outcomes of that choice. And in jurisdictions where that's true, 
if you go to that prosecutor and say, we want to divert violence into restorative justice, like you're going to at least get a meeting. Yeah, that's a really interesting way of flipping it. Our progressive prosecutor in Boston, it was also powerful because she could just say, this is my mandate, right? You know, anytime she get pushback, she could just point to her voters and say, I was elected for, for these reasons. But she also was you know, there was court watching programs like she was held accountable in a way that no prior DA had had been. So, yeah, it's a it's an interesting way of flipping it on its head. And I think we have to think about we have to understand that elected prosecutors hold a position of power in a larger system. And so the question is about accountability is not about their individual character. It's about the mechanisms to hold them accountable. And frankly, at the end of the day, I would far rather have a sort of self-interested, nasty dude who was accountable to the impacted communities, as opposed to a really righteous, good human who wasn't. Like that structural accountability is what matters and the, the built power of communities is what will determine what's possible. Um, last question. How has, the, how has the model changed over time? Or, you know, yeah, how has it changed over time? So putting aside the adaptations we made during COVID, we've made a number of small changes to the model. We make them continuously. But the big categories of changes. Um, one is that in our early years, we did not focus as systematically on our responsible party's stability. So, of course, if they lost their housing, we would address that crisis as it arose. But we didn't have built into our work from the first day a structured focus on their housing, their income, their engagement in positive activities. We were just squarely focused on violence. And part of the learnings of our first few years was that if we didn't put equal energy into that stabilizing work, people would not be positioned to make the new choices they now want to make with regard to violence. And then the other big change we made is we started doing a lot more brief work. A lot of the model is heavily individual, um, but we had somebody graduate pretty early. And I asked him, you know, what's the hardest thing about common justice? And he said, two things. Okay. So the first thing is not punching people in their faces when they're stupid, because people can be real stupid. And I Agreed. And this was addressed in our curriculum. I felt comfortable with it. And I said, what's the second thing? And he said, never mind. And, you know, I work with adolescents and prosecutors, so I'm endlessly stubborn and patient. <laughs> so I was like, I can wait for number two. And eventually he's like, well, it can be really lonely. And what he was naming is that the choices he was making in his life, many of them required that he separate from people who he cared about, from social situations that he had previously enjoyed, that he separate from whole blocks, whole neighborhoods. And not everyone's trajectory requires that kind of separation, but some do. And in that, it can be really deeply isolating. And so in part because of his feedback and because of what we were learning generally in the work, we started doing a lot more groups. We introduced a group called Men Opposing Violence Everywhere, the MOVE group for our male-identified participants, and later introduced a group called Wawa Abba for our female femme-identified participants, where they can come together and develop more deeply with one another around these same things. We started doing community meetings every time we went to court, where if we went to court, we'd come back together and let people collectively 
move through and shake off the experience of that place where no matter how well people are doing, everyone experiences like great fear and often other things too in the face of the criminal legal system actors and the buildings and all of it. So brought them together in community meetings, started doing more rites of passage type circles where they would be gathered with one another at points of inflection, both good and challenging in their process. And and really in that have learned deeply and the course of it, you know, that we're pretty useful to them, but they're extraordinarily useful to each other. Well, I think that's a great place to end it. So thank you so much. I really, when I've heard you talk a couple of times and it's, it's both radical and also just extremely pragmatic and obvious. You know what I mean? It's like when you, it's like, of course we should be doing this, but at the same time, it seems, you know, it's like this big deal that we would have to move towards these principles. So I appreciate your taking the time. My godson once many years ago, we were talking about it. He was like, while you were talking, I forgot that that's not what we do. (laughs) And I know that people for me, like the teachers for me who helped me temporarily forget that it's not what we do. And I know anytime I get to be in that space. That's where I can actually see to to what's right. Appreciate that very much. That's it for this episode. Thanks so much to the folks at PCJ for helping to facilitate this and to Poddington Bear for composing our theme music.